Hello and welcome to the Behind the Artist podcast with Park West Gallery. I'm Gallery Director Morris Shapiro. If you'd like to view works of the artists I'm interviewing and learn more about them, please visit our podcast site with links to more content at parkwestgallery.com forward slash podcast. International art dealer Park West Gallery is proud to present our new podcast series, Behind the Artist. Each episode will be talking to popular contemporary artists to learn the stories and inspiration behind their extraordinary artwork and fascinating careers. Dominic Pangborn calls himself an evolutionist, and that's in reference to his continually developing ideas and his manifestations of them. As an artist with an apparently unlimited imagination and the ability to bring his ideas to fruition through his background both as a designer and a fine artist, Dominic has forged a career that is truly unique in the art world today. He moves effortlessly between powerful abstract imagery, rigorous representational painting, and even into kinetic creations through his Art in Motion series, which blend the viewer's perceptions of illusionary pictorial space. Born in a tiny village in South Korea to an American GI whom he never knew and a Korean mother, Dominic's journey to artistic fame is really like no other. In this episode, he recounts in detail his solitary trip as a 10-year-old boy from Korea to the United States, where he was adopted by the Pangborn family. He talks about his early studies in design at the famed Chicago Art Academy, his days as a designer, including the development of his famous neckties and scarves, talks about his creative process, and interestingly, his return to his own form of spirituality after a lifetime of religious skepticism. It's a fascinating conversation, lots of unique insights and revelations about one of the contemporary art world's most intriguing and, I think, original creative spirits. This is Behind the Artist. It's no frills, just real and deep conversation. I'm Morris Shapiro, and I hope you enjoy this journey into the life and art of Dominic Pangborn. So, Dominic, thanks so much for being on the program. I've been looking forward to uh, having you here with me for so long. We keep passing each other. You know, you're going in one direction, I'm going in the other. We tried to hook up in Detroit a couple of times, but finally we got a chance to sit down and, and talk. And I'm so delighted. You know, I'm such a big fan of your work, and I have so much respect for you. I would have to say, of you know, all the artists I've met, and I've met, you know, hundreds and hundreds of artists in my you know, 40 plus years in the art world, you are one of the most creative people. You are just bursting with creative ideas and you're constantly progressing in your work and you just have such an amazing work ethic and imagination and your projects and all the things you do. It's just, I'm, I'm completely in awe of what you've accomplished. And so I want to really drill down if we can into your life and your work and let people that are listening really learn about you, you know, as much as you're willing to share with us. A lot of the interesting things I find from our listeners is that they really love hearing the artist's story because every artist has an amazing story. You know, I always say how courageous artists are and the walk that they walk and the path that they take because it's not a calling that everybody else has the fortitude and the, <laughs> the discipline and the yeah. dedication to and the courage, you know, to, to pursue and be successful, you know, and famous. So I know that you were born in Korea in 1952. Your father was an American GI, right, in the war, and you never met your father. You have no idea even who he was. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, I, I do think about, you know, would I want to find my father and then... But reality is, answer is no. Um, for me, my father 
was the figures that simply people that nurtured, helped me, raised me. Um, in my situation, I think the, the biggest father figure of my life was my grandfather, Roy Pangborn. Mm -hmm. Roy Pangborn, yeah. yeah, yeah, in Michigan. Yeah, yeah. So your father, you know, had relations with your mother one one night or whatever, and you were born, right? So right. you were born in this little village in, in South Korea, right? Tiny, tiny village, right? Like, how many people in the village? Maximum 12 families. 12 families, yeah. wow, yeah. wow, in the country. Yeah, it was right. almost like a little clan. My, uh, my last name was Jung, and so everybody in the village was named Jung. Mm -hmm. And the next village was Park, another one was Kim, mm -hmm. and that's where it was. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were almost that little clan, almost tribe, uh, in this little, almost little valley or in the woods, you know. I've heard you talk about um, the fact that you actually are pleased that you came from such modest circumstances because it taught you to really be resourceful. Yeah, at, you know, at first when I was, you know, got to thinking about where well, I have to go and speak and tell my story and stuff, and when I started to think about it, I realized how important, how valuable my whole life was in that first 10 years. Uh, just having to grow up in Korea at a time and place where we literally had nothing. And, uh, you know, it, yeah, it's a struggle, but, you know, it taught me so much. Everyday situation, I mean, whether if we wanted to play a game, we had to make up a game. It wasn't a situation where, let's go play hide and seek, and I mean, we had that kind of thing, but we had games, so then we had a counting system, so we don't have a dice. And so, like, how do we do that? So what we did was we took a sugar cane and uh, slice them in half, and we take uh, five of them, and you tap it and you throw it. If it's all face down, mm -hmm. that's five. If it faces up, that's actually six. Oh. <laughs> and so you get a bonus. Oh. And if it's just two faces up, that's two and that right. kind of thing. Right. Right. And uh, it was just wonderful. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's amazing. So being Eurasian, right, it was difficult for you. It was challenging. You were sort of ostracized within yeah. the, 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 the community. And then your, so your mom decided that she was going to push up for adoption. And how old were you? I was 10 years old. 10 years old. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I had name calling, and I, I knew I was different right from the get-go. You had blonde hair, And right? I literally did. And I had my hair on my arms were just long and white. <laughs> and so immediately people, would, because Asians really don't have hair in their arms, you know. And they were just almost, I was like a little monkey or something, you know. And uh, But it's just name calling never. I don't re calling that ever hurt me or bother me. And, but somewhere it, it bothered my mother for sure, you know. And so, um, you know, I toughed it out. I got into a lot of fights and stuff, but... You know, I just took that as a normal, you know, growing up. How did she make the arrangements to get you adopted? Yeah. Well, one particular day, and I remember vividly, this all of a sudden motor vehicle arrives in our village. And I believe that was the first time I had ever seen a motor vehicle. And it was a military jeep. And uh, this priest, and in white, bright white cloak and he had white hair he was about six foot tall but to the Koreans he was might have been ten foot tall 
and he was huge just in terms of weight size rounded and inside it's just this big white robe I mean that even made it bigger than ever was he American? American yeah. yeah he stood up on that jeep almost like a stage and everybody in the village came out and they were looking up to this man and I wasn't one of them I stood back from a quite a distance staring at this whole scene and I'm asking myself who is this man and what does he want he's here for something you know and of course he preached to them about the God and religion and all that and and uh, even then I was very skeptical mm-hmm. oh so he's preaching this God <laughs> and what's he gonna say that we had bad crop this year we didn't pray enough mm-hmm. and if we have a good crop because you went to church I mean I kind of already was in that stage where you're a skeptic already it, yeah but then, yeah uh-huh. you know I said, what a con game kind of attitude, you know. And uh, I never went and greeted the man or nothing. I walked away. And uh, But apparently, um, he had come back to the village a couple more times. I never paid attention to it. and and But somewhere, apparently, he had noticed me from that distance. And he asked someone about me and said, what is that American boy doing here? And then, of course, he was introduced to my mother, and the two of them met. And uh, my mother asked him, well, can you get him to America? At least that's my take on it. I don't know personally. And somewhere the two of them had agreed. And so one day my mother came to me and said, would you like to go to America? And I didn't hesitate a second. I said, yes. Well, you have to go by yourself. (laughs) And you're 10. 10 years old, and I was excited. I said, sure, no problem. You had no idea what that entailed, though, going by yourself, right? I survive every day in Korea, Mm -hmm. and I mean, I knew how to, if I, if I had been in the woods a particular day, and and there was no way I was going to get home or whatever, I would survive Mm -hmm. in the woods, Mm -hmm. you know? I knew what kind of mushrooms to pick and what kind of, I see roots that I could dig up and I could eat that and I could survive the whole, you know. Wow. So I just felt America would have the same thing. I wouldn't be able, you know, no problem. Yeah. I think I remember you saying that you had to walk from your village like a really long distance by yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in order to go to the uh, city uh, where I would have to catch the bus to Seoul. Right. Um, the situation was okay. Once we, it was agreed that the adoption process was all, the, all the paperwork was done, um, I was given the instruction from my mother that I'd have to go to Kaysan. Kaysan was the first city that I could actually go and catch the bus. Mm-hmm. And the distance from my village to Kaysan is probably about, I would say, maybe 20 miles. So you yeah. walked 20 miles yeah. by yourself, right? 10 years old. Well, it, it was even more difficult was the fact that I really couldn't walk to main street or road, mm-hmm. you know, dirt path, because I would be seen by some other kids mm-hmm. in the next village maybe. I'd have to walk past, and they would want to come and yeah. beat me up or yeah. whatever. Right. 
so I had to cut through the woods and stuff sort of uh, so whenever there was a village or something of a group of people up ahead I would go into the woods and go around them and things like that but so I got to the town and and I was given the instruction to go to the church and uh, this priest had built a Catholic church in that town and and the caretaker for that church would uh, expect me and and he would take me in and so I did and I arrived at the church safely and um, so I said well when do I get on the bus he said well whenever he comes I said well I said there's schedule he says yeah whenever he comes whenever he comes <laughs> so every day right early in the morning I would go down to the main street and I just hung out on the main street and because it was also safe because adults in the town were very protective of me. Mm-hmm. As the kids would be, if I got in the alley, it might be a different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I stood in the main street and in front of the restaurants and shops. There was a barber shop, there was a movie theater. and you never uh, knew when the bus was going to show up. So right. you just had to be there. I yeah. just had to be there, yeah. you know. And so I got to see the movie for the first time. The owner of the movie theater was Everybody, all the adults were taken by me. It's mm-hmm. just this incredible, unique, mm-hmm. you know, American blonde, boy. Blonde, yeah. Korean boy. And yeah. Then, so they would invite me, the restaurant owner would invite me. So every day they would feed me everything. Um, this photographer, only record of picture I had was that this photographer saw me on the street. He invited me into his studio, had me pose and shot me a bunch of pictures and, and gave me a, a handful of four or five uh, small uh, wallet size that I stuck in my pocket. You still have those? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so I brought those with me. And uh, anyways, the movie theater was, uh, believe it or not, it was John Wayne movie, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, of course, the war movie, uh, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Korean. Yeah. Korean dubbed. Oh, no. They oh, didn't English? have yeah. they, they didn't have dubbed back then so wow. it was just an English movie yeah, yeah. so we, nobody understood it's just <laughs> you know but it's a combat movie right, so right. bang 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 shooting yeah. you know and uh, a lot of it was I'm sure it was to promote you know uh, patriotism and rah-rah you know kind of thing and uh, um, but anyways it took about two weeks and wow, finally two weeks yeah and one day all of a sudden uh, it was uh, early in the morning about uh, 10 o'clock or so and I got the word. Someone said, the bus is coming. Well, I ran to the church and grabbed only thing I had that was my possession was sweater. I grabbed that sweater, ran to the bus, jumped on, and I got to Seoul. And, and how be, far was Seoul from Quezon? It's about three hours. Three hours, yeah, okay. About three hours. And who was waiting for you in Seoul? Well, that was the thing. There wasn't anybody waiting for me. Wow. Uh, I had to figure out. I had to go and find a Catholic missionary mm-hmm. center. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, you know, to be honest, I have no idea how I managed, but I found the place, and the priest took me in, and um, he gave me a room. And uh, that Sunday, first Sunday came, and he said, why don't you uh, come to uh, uh, Mass with me? So I got in the Jeep with him, and, and he went to the U.S. military base. And he's going to say, the, and this was an American priest, and not the one that's uh, um, your village. from yeah. my village, yeah. but a friend of his. Uh-huh. So actually his name was Father Kennedy, 
and uh, he um, <coughs> took me with him and he told me to wait in the Jeep and said it's just going to be a short mass, you know, about an hour long or whatever. And so I was sitting in the Jeep and uh, another Jeep pulled up with about uh, five uh, U.S. Uh, soldiers and uh, one of them spoke uh, Korean and said, um, asked me what I was doing and I was telling him I was w waiting for the priest and he said, um, it's going to be a little while. And so he said, why don't you come with us? And uh, so they took me and um, gave me some ice cream and, and I was having a great time. Well, the priest, apparently, he came out and he couldn't find me. And he was livid, you know. When he found me, he just yanked me and put me in that Jeep. And we went to the back to the rectory and, and uh, he put me in the room locked me in there that I'm not to leave you know he wasn't about to lose me you know so for the next about four or five days I was locked You're away locked up in the fed room. yeah wow. fed and locked the door and wow. this and so and uh, finally uh, the day arrived where I'm getting on the plane and uh, I got on the plane and there was uh, five girls about the same age uh, a couple of them, maybe six, seven to ten years of age, uh, they were being adopted. And there was one boy, uh, his American name was Matthew, and so we're the only two boys. And so Matthew and I decided to hang with each other, and, and the girls, of course, hung out. And we got on the plane, and Matt, Matthew and I sat next to each other, and um, we were just like, couldn't believe this thing looks like the size of a, my village is going to fly up in the air, yeah. you know, it's like, and I remember the first meal they handed us was the salad, and we looked at that salad and just looked at each other like, what do you think, we're a couple of rabbits, we can eat this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Your first experience with airline cuisine. <laughs> well, it was the salad, I mean, I mean we eat um, you know, kimchi, the lettuce, right. but it's in the kimchi. It's not, we're not eating a raw cabbage, you know. We're not reading, and uh, the, the carrot is like, you know, you feed this stuff to the rabbit, <laughs> not, you know. Yeah. Long flight? Detroit? You fly uh, straight to Detroit from Seoul? No, the flight it actually came through Anchorage. Oh, boy. And so the first stop was in Alaska, and they were going to uh, fuel and then we got snowed in so we had to spend the night and so airlines put us into this uh, room and uh, uh, with these five girls and the <laughs> two of us and it was a bunch of bunk beds and uh, and so as soon as the uh, chaperone left Matt and I decided to let's, let's get out of here you know go take a walk and girls, they were screaming, like, we're going to tell on you kind of thing. And so said, well, go ahead, because we're going to go take a walk. And, and we snuck out of the room, and we had no idea where the hell we were. And, and we got out into the airport corridor, and, and we see all these people, and, and just, I mean, hustle, bustle, excitement. And we see these stores, and, and we have no idea what these things are. And, and all of a sudden, this old man, <clears throat> comes by and you know, hands us, each of us, a coin. And all we know is we know it's money. We have no idea how much, what kind of coin it is, anything. So we decided to test it. And so we both walked into the store, grabbed something we wanted, 
went to the counter and we slapped that coin and then we got more change back and so my assumption is we both got silver dollars <laughs> each yeah and uh, and anyways we went back to home we as soon as we came out of the store the chaperone with the two policemen <laughs> was there they were looking for us and uh, they yanked us by our ears and he took us out to a separate room locked us in there mm -hmm. until next morning I'm seeing a pattern here <laughs> <laughs> so if you fly from Alaska to Detroit right? yeah so, so now you get off the plane and you meet your parents the bank boys yeah, got off and and uh, Chaperone uh, took me and introduced me to uh, Mary and Spencer Pangborn. And I remember Mary was dressed in her Sunday outfit with this big, huge hat and and uh, just beautiful. And uh, he was with his bright tie on. And and uh, anyways, they had to have some conversation. And they bought me a model airplane as a gift. And so I was on the floor playing with this plane and uh, while they talked and finally after they got done we, I followed them to their car and got in and uh, drove me to their home and they got there pretty late at night it was probably 11 12 o'clock at night and, and pitch black and out in the countryside and walked in and see this family of 11 kids just lined up in a row just waiting they, been, they, they must have been waiting all night you know and soon as the probably headlights of the car pulling into driveway, they all lined up, and and uh, first thing I just thought was like, wow, this is so beautiful to have all these. You know, I didn't know it was this family. I thought it was the children of the entire village welcoming me. You know, and <laughs> welcoming just, committee. Oh yeah, I mean, I had a grin on my face, and and then of course they all start, you know, shaking my hand and and almost like I was a new puppy, you know. Next day, they're trying to cram stuff, food into my mouth, and and I remember the first thing they tried to give me to drink was orange juice, and oh my God, that orange juice, you know, everybody would say orange juice is sweet. Well, as my first taste of that orange juice, it was so bitter, and oh, I couldn't take that, I mean, uh, it took me several, probably two years before I would drink orange juice. <laughs> I just looked at everybody like, how do you drink that stuff? Yeah. I remember you saying that you kept thinking they were going to go home, the villagers, <laughs> right? <laughs> they well, never I, left. I, <laughs> when I, did it occur to you that, that, that there were right. now 12 children in the Pangborn family? I just never imagined that family, I mean, my village of 12 families in the village, I mean, there were six children. In the whole village. Yeah. 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 And there's yeah. 12 in the house. This yeah. is a small house, too. They were not well off, yeah. the Bangborns. Yeah, yeah. What an amazing family. What an incredible yeah. thing to do. Yeah, beautiful. So you're blending in to the family, right? And you, at one point, I guess just discovered that you like to draw, right? It was like yeah. a magical thing for you. Well, it's, it's one of those things that I, it was a pure accident, to be honest. I went to a dime store, as you know, it's not the dollar store, but dime store. And everything was five and, five and ten cents, they call it. And I went in there for one thing. I wanted to buy a small transistor radio. You know, Japanese made those AM, FM radios, and, and uh, I just was so intrigued by that. 
and when I went to get that radio, I saw their, um, I guess, a promotion uh, of acrylic paint. It was like a little set of uh, maybe a dozen tubes of paint, mm -hmm. and uh, with a little some brushes. Yeah, yeah, well, brushes, and there was a pamphlet on how to paint a portrait, and another one how to paint landscape. So I bought this package. And uh, I basically snuck at home because I didn't want anybody to know that I wanted to do this, you know. And so I hid everything, and only place you could hid in that house was down in the basement somewhere. And um, uh, basement wasn't normal basement in our house. Basement was our kitchen. <clears throat> okay, this is where the big dining table was. Not only that dining table, there was an actual picnic table also sitting next to it because we never had dinner with the 14 of us. We always had dinner with 14 of us, plus would have another six kids from the neighborhood. Wow. Nobody wanted to go home. Wow. They come to play. Our front yard was literally exactly the size of a football field, okay, 100 yards long. And we play. We never had to cut the grass because Kids grass never. Yeah, run all over it and beat it down. Well, we yeah. played sports all year long on that field. Mm -hmm. You know, um, baseball in the winter time. It didn't matter what the weather was. We were playing football, baseball, and so on. And then kids, when it's time for us to have a dinner, they uh, looking at, um, come on in. <laughs> yes. Tell your mom you're gonna have dinner with yeah, us right, and so right, on. Right. And kids, really, the neighborhood kids really love that. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. So you're making these paintings, mm -hmm. secretive, right. right? And you're painting like landscapes, um, objects. What I lights. painted was uh, really uh, landscapes was the first priority um, because you know um, back in those days, families got calendars from banks from insurance companies. Um, that was their biggest promotions, mm -hmm. calendars. Right. So we got these calendars and most of them had four seasons photographs of Michigan. Mm -hmm. you know? So I would sit, do these paintings of a fall scene, uh, waterfall from one of the um, falls up in northern Michigan or something, you know. And then I got into painting one of the calendars I got was a calendar from Korea. And that came from the, the priest. Uh, the priest who brought me was actually my uh, mother's brother. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. So he had uh, uh, given me a calendar from Korea. And if you ever see calendars from Korea, they're the most beautiful, even today. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I remember vividly uh, this one was uh, um, the Korean girl in a, a traditional Korean outfit on a swing set, and I painted that picture. I can still see that in my head right now, you know. And I really love it. Was I captured that girl so perfectly, you know? And then I got into painting um, Conan the Barbarian. <laughs> my older brother. That's all he read. So his bedroom was just stacks of Conan the Barbarian paperbacks. Yeah. Oh, and the covers were immaculate. Yeah. Covers yeah. were by artists named Frank Frazetta. Yeah, I remember Frank Frazetta, oh, famous God. artist. Yeah. Great yeah. illustrator. Yeah. Incredible. He was like the master of that he, genre. He was. Yeah. He was the master of yeah. that, you know. 
and uh, just this the warrior, you know, just a muscular, just a and and just these uh, female figures in just a very limited, you know, um, clothing on them, just a, hanging on for like, please save me, kind of, you know, and uh, so I would mimic those covers. And why do you think you were hesitant to let anybody see your, your first paintings? That you, were, you kept them secrets? Oh, I, I was just afraid. It's, well, that this family was uh, somewhat dysfunctional. I mean, they, we have boys who are all jocks. I mean, they were all captains of every sport track, baseball, football. They were Pangborn. If, if a Pangborn was on the football team, they were the captain. Okay. And uh, so they were, in many ways, they were spoiled jocks. They got away with doing anything they want and stuff, you know. You were just afraid they would tease you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. there would be no question about it. They would be teasing and, and you know, the, the idea of, uh, you know, the dozen or the more the merrier, you know. No, everybody, the way the family was, that everybody had their, their best buddy and they hung out with that person, that's it. And the other two was your enemy, or we got in a fight and that kind of thing. And uh, the oldest four, uh, they were already beyond us, so it was really um, my brother Vince, who was a year ahead of me, my sister Martha and I were same age, and then Gene, Robert, Kent, and Frank, and, and uh, so Robert and I were kind of team, and Vince and John was a team, and. So Vince and John and, and Robert and I, we always fought each other, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Martha and Jean was the two girls, so they were themselves. And, did, and you, did you hide your, your paintings from your team, too? I, or did, from yeah, everybody? Yeah, Robert, yeah, uh, yeah I, I would tell Robert some things. And I mean, Robert was like four years uh, younger than me, you know. So uh, I was 10, he was, he, he might even be, been maybe six years, yeah, six mm -hmm. years. So he was only like four years old, and he really looked up to me almost as I was his uh, little, um, you know, um, older brother that just took care of him, you know. Where did you hide your paintings? Well, I, in the basement, uh, I one of the little rooms in the basement was our sort of the uh, cupboard where all the grocery was and stuff. I, so I stuck it away in the back, you know, <laughs> behind all this stuff. Yeah. And how did they get discovered? I have no idea to this day. I never had asked who found it or whatever. And uh, all I know is I came down in the basement and uh, it was before dinner and uh, my dad was actually cooking and uh, he did all the cooking. My mother would prepare the stuff, then he would cook. He was a cook in the military. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, the pots and pans were military size, yeah. And uh, so he was cooking and, and somebody brought them all out and they were laid across the dining table. And so when I came down the basement, um, I just saw this group leaning over the dining table. I didn't even know that they were looking at my art. And I came over and I saw they were all my art. And uh, at the same time, my father stepped over. And uh, I still don't remember any of them saying a single word. You know, like, wow, these are cool or nothing. They were just, just jaws open like, wow, you know. And uh, 
my dad just spoke out and said, uh, hey, uh, can I have one of those for my office? And I said, sure. And um, next day he came home and, and said, uh, you want to sell it? What do you mean? He says, well, the guy next door, he really likes it. And what the painting was, was uh, one of Frank Frazetta's oh. uh, warriors. Oh. Oh. Uh, there was four warriors on a horseback and they were just charging. And this in the foreground was this woman just, you know, begging for mercy, you know. And um, and it, it was, it was a beautiful painting. I had just captured every bit of it. And uh, and he sold it for $145. I mean, that was unheard of, you know. Yeah, especially when you're, what, 11, 12 years old? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I remember you saying, he uh, he came back and he said, "You want to sell it?" And you said, "How much?" <laughs> I I said, "How much?" And it's one hundred forty-five dollars. And and the first thing I said, "Well, how many does he want?" You know. <laughs> well, I had already lot. already you were the entrepreneur. <laughs> I, well, I had so many more. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, paintings. Right, yeah. you had a whole uh, basket full of them. Yeah. Right. So that was it. Yeah. Right. That was your first sale. Yeah. How wonderful. So art then be, kind of became your lifeline, right? And that was the thing that you did. Well, that was the thing actually, that separated you from the rest of the family. Yeah, actually, it, I, I already had decided. I mean, what letter I knew about being an artist was really struggling and tough life. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't want that, you know. And so I, as much as I enjoyed it, it was not something I would ever look at as a profession. And uh, so um, I continued to paint and... And uh, it wasn't until my actually sophomore year, so I never did much art in school. Mm -hmm. My sophomore year, my grade point was very low. Uh, religion was uh, religion and English was two subjects I struggled with. Mm -hmm. uh, religion, I just argued with the teacher constantly, the nuns and the priest. You know, I didn't believe what they were telling me. I was still skeptical as the day I first uh, encountered mm -hmm. religion. And, uh, and English was challenging for you? English yeah. was frustrating. It was just, how can you have a language that sounds the same, but there are different words or synonyms and homonyms and on. It's like, oh, come on. What do you mean dissect a sentence? And, and God, why can't people just talk to each other? You know, <laughs> this kind of thing. And uh, anyways, I, I, a lot of it was more personal than it was real. Uh, I remember, was it, uh, it was my junior year, uh, I actually got a B in English. And I never had gotten a B, usually it'd be a D, you know, C minus at the best, you know. So when I got this B, I got angry. And I felt that the teacher was patronizing me and and I went over to the teacher and and she had asked me, what's up? And I said, I want to talk to, to you about my grade. Because uh, what did you get? I said, I got B. And I said, well, I don't think I deserve to get a B. I, I know you know my history and where I came from and and you know my parents and and she looked at me and said, are you suggesting I gave you that B? Uh, yes, ma'am. You sit down right there. And she grabbed her book 
and I, and she slapped it on that table and she said, you look up your grades and you tell me what it comes to. So I showed all my work and exams and I added up and averaged, it came out to be. I gave you no more, no less than what you earned. So get out of this room right now and don't you ever think that and so on. I would never do that, you know. And But even after she showed it to me, proved to me that it was my grade, I still didn't have the confidence, you know. And I went on and, and um, it wasn't until I was about to graduate and the one person I admired the most as my father figure was Roy Pangborn. Your grandfather. I, my grandfather. Yeah. I would, you know, every day from the time I was 10 years old, I would go to his house on Saturday and cut his grass till 5, 5.30 and do anything, yard work and all that stuff. And then I'd take a shower, have dinner with him, watch Jackie Gleason or baseball, whichever came on. And then after that, they would take me home. It was the same routine. But my grandfather was such an incredible man. He was an engineer, and, and he would ask me questions. And he would talk to me as an adult. He never talked down to me. He would actually ask for advice. What do you think of doing this? Or, hey, I want to do this. How, how do you, you know, proceed to do that or something? And I would tell him, and he said, I love it, let's do it, and that kind of thing. And uh, so um, from there, I, I just felt that, you know, um, what I wanted to do was I wanted to make this man the most proud man. And he was the first person to ask me the question, um, what are you going to be, you know, when you grow up, yeah. you know? And it was time to apply for college at the time senior year and so I wanted him to be proud and I answered I said well I want to be an engineer and I thought he would be just delighted and say oh great and this and that and no he replied real just quickly so you can't your English isn't good enough I never expected that word to come out of that man's mouth and uh, so I replied very quickly I said well then I'll try to become a lawyer. He said, well, even a lawyer has to have a better English. And I just felt like, okay, this conversation isn't going anywhere. So I walked away and and uh, didn't think much about it. And, and then a few days later, my mother asked the same question, have you decided about the college? And I said, no, I'm gonna just not go to college. I'm gonna go and work in a factory and save some money and I said I'll go to college later you know? and I said oh okay well go tell your dad that I said wow that was easy because I was struggling to how to explain it to her and so he said well what's up and said mom told me to talk to you about the college so what have you decided I said well I'm gonna work in the factory a couple of years save some extra money and then go to college and uh, I just thought this would be a good way to get out of that conversation and he said, well, why don't you go to art school? And I never heard of art school. I knew, I didn't think there was a, such a thing. And, and I said, what do they do? He said, well, they take, they teach you painting and drawing. And, and uh, I said, what about English? He says, well, they don't have English in art school. 
and that was really the the moment that said, "Oh my God, this is there's a heaven after all." You I know? can really do this. Yeah, yeah, I can go to a school that teaches drawing and painting yeah. and don't have to study English. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bingo. Yeah, and, you know, biology, no, no, no <laughs> academics, everything, you know. And so immediately, no diagramming I, sentences. <laughs> I got excited, and so the next day I went to the. Um, the sister Rose Gilbert, who was the head of the art department, and I went to her and I said, "Sister, I want to go to art school." She got so excited. She said, "Oh my God, I'm so glad!" And I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "You are an incredible artist. You are the best." And so I said, "What? Well, then why didn't you tell me this?" Said, no, I wanted you to make that decision. Mm -hmm. And so, so where do you want to go? Where do they have art schools? He goes, what city would you like to go to? And I said, Chicago. And the only reason I picked Chicago, I had never been there. Uh, only thing I knew about Chicago was the Al Capone. Okay? And that's Elliot Untouchables. Every Sunday night, I would watch the Untouchables. That was my favorite show. So when she asked that question, what city? There was no other city but the go to Chicago. And she said, great. Chicago is beautiful. She gave me three names of school. Art Institute of Chicago, um, the Ray Vogue School, and the Chicago Academy of Art. I wrote to all three of them. And first one I got responded was the Chicago Academy. And just without any, I wrote back and says, I, I want to come. He said, well, it's, you have to bring your portfolio. And, we have to interview you and this kind of thing. And so my dad drove me to Chicago, and and on the spot they said uh, you're accepted. And, wow. Yeah. And uh, that fall, I was in school. I was terrified. I had never been to a big city like that. And uh, I just figured, I here's a country hick boy, and with all these city kids. And uh, I learned very quickly these city kids were about as dumb as they could be and, and uh, suck our artistic talents. And I wouldn't say they had the greatest artistic talents either, you know. And uh, so all of a sudden I felt this uh, uh, self-confidence that, you know what, I could outdo these guys uh, blind, you know. So this is like 72, 71, 72? 71. Yeah, 71, yeah. Um, Walt Disney went to that school, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Walt Disney. Yeah. And the other one was uh, Harold Foster, member of Prince Valiant. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I didn't realize Chicago Academy was the first art school to be um, uh, in America. And uh, and one of the things is uh, um, this was the first school in America that taught cartooning. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, animation. Yeah. yeah. Lots of cool stories about your school. I think they're they're really uh, intriguing. So I want to I want to talk about those. So you're in you're enrolled in school. You got enough money for probably a year, one year, or something like that. I had right? just yeah. en just enough money to last one year. Yeah, you know. Uh, all so the what happened after yeah. that? Well, I couldn't wait for that one year to. So uh, I had been in school probably no more than about three weeks, and it was the end of that three weeks. Uh, I think it was like a Monday morning, I woke up and I'm rushing to the shower and running out of the room and I want to get to school in time. And it was the first time I felt this excitement of going to school that I couldn't wait, you know. 
and I just all of a sudden my conscience just stopped me right at the coming out of the bedroom asking myself why are you so excited to go to school you know and I just stopped as if a, someone was just questioning me right there and telling myself wow I really love everything about what I'm seeing you know first year it's all about orientation so I'm taking a photography class and I'm taking a, a design 101 painting class and drawing class and everything we were doing was just beautiful that was the moment I said this is it I want to do this but I have to think about how to make money from it though you know Great. and so I I walked to school that's you know and I got to school, and the first thing I did, I went to the dean's office, and I told him, I said, listen, uh, sir, I want to change my class. I didn't tell him I had just the money for one year. I just, you know, and uh, he said, what year are you? I said, I'm a freshman. He said, well, you don't have any options. You have to do orientation for one year. I said, sir, I, I understand, but I want to change it. Well, I just told you, you can't change it. I said, but I understand what you're saying, but I want to change it. And we kind of arguing like this, and finally I gave him the little story. I said, sir, imagine you are a car salesman, and you are selling Cadillac and Chevy, and I walk in, and I want the Cadillac. And he said, how much is a Chevy and the Cadillac? It's the same price. If they're same price, then I want the Cadillac. So I said, the classes, all the credit hours, whether it's freshman, junior, senior, they're all same price, right? He said, yeah. Well, then I am the customer. I don't want to buy the freshman class. I want to buy the senior class or junior class. Advanced classes. Yeah. He said, you can't, you know. He says, there was a protocol, and I finally told him, I sir, I didn't come to this school to buy a protocol. I want the class, I want to learn, okay, that's what it's all about, you know. So he finally just said, go take whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> he relented. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so that first morning I, I was in the advanced drawing class, and this was strictly for juniors and seniors. And uh, the teacher said, well, you're new. I said, yes, ma'am. What grade are you in? What year are you? I said, I'm a freshman, first semester. Well, you're in the wrong classroom. I said, no, ma'am, I'm in the right classroom. No, you're not. This is juniors and seniors. I understand. I'm in the right room, you know. And here's my paper. I says, they made a mistake. I said, ma'am, it's correct. I'm in this class. <laughs> well, she stormed out of the room and came back, and she slams the door shut. You can sit in my room, but I'm not teaching you. Mm. Wow. So, okay, fine, whatever. And the first project was really a, uh, we had a life drawing. And uh, we had this uh, male nude figure uh, posing. And uh, everybody's drawing the figure as what they see and so on. But I was looking at it from a different point of view. And, and the painting was very surrealism, you know. 
And uh, if any artist that would be very proud of that today would have been Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon would have like, oh my God, that's it, you know. And I look at that picture, I still have that drawing, and look at that and look at Francis Bacon, it's like, we could have been the same person, hmm. yeah. And then the second one was this, uh, oh, big, huge female. Uh, just she came from Jamaica, and she just—I mean, she was like 300-pound woman just up there, and uh, just all the just reports of her fat, and and oh my, my drawing was so creative, mm -hmm. and uh, and not just using charcoal pencil and stuff. I was using uh, Dr. Martin ink with it and stuff, and and that was the moment that the teacher just said. I need you to participate with us. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So she wanted you to actually oh. teach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Oh, so she goes from saying I'm not going to teach you to telling you you should be on the faculty. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so all of a sudden, I got five instructors who was reluctant. All of a sudden, they decided they got together and says, "There's only one scholarship we give out in the school. We're going to give it to him." Nice. Yeah. So, it's perfect timing because you're going to run out of money, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. but luckily, I got a job at a design studio while going to school. While not going yeah. to school, I wanted to be an apprentice, and uh, I was actually uh, promised by one of the instructors that if I came back the second semester, she would give me a job at this uh, small uh, studio, mm -hmm. and uh, so I came back the second semester. And I went to her, and uh, her name was Helen Simon, and I said, Helen, uh, can you help me get that job? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, here, go see this person at this, well, I went there, and the guy asked me, uh, you have any experience? I said, no, sir, I said, no, sorry, uh, I need someone with experience, you know. And, but, sir, I, I learned very fast, and it says, hey, listen, I don't need anybody at this name. So, on my own, I started to interview I went through 42 interviews. Man, over the next two weeks, I was just so down and angry, and it's just like, can't, I, some of them, I, I told them like this one, one guy, I said, listen, let me work here free, okay, for one month, just to show you what I can do. No, everybody wanted someone with experience. And I would even argue, like, okay, how am I going to get experience if no one is going to give it to me, you know, this didn't matter, we're not going to do it, you know. And uh, finally I was at the, okay, I'm just going to finish this semester, be done with it, you know. And that was before the scholarship. The scholarship didn't really come through until toward the end of that semester. And so... Uh, all of a sudden, it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, everybody had uh, uh, gone, and uh, I was one of the last ones in the school, and I saw this uh, um, young lady from the admissions coming up to the bulletin board and um, pinned something up there. So I went over and said the science that the uh, apprentice wanted uh, at this studio. And so I took the thing so no one else would call, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I went straight to the phone booth and called the guy, and, and Ralph answered. And, and I said, well, I'd like to come and interview for the job. Well, I didn't have any portfolio other than six drawings on an 8 by 8 inch 
white board, Strathmore board, and it was a six by six inch drawings that was all done with rapidograph pen, just black and white, right. clean perfection. You know. Rapidograph is a wonderful uh, technical pen that artists right. use. Yeah. yeah. So I, uh, that's all I had as a portfolio to show. So I took those uh, six pieces and uh, went over, met with the guy, and uh, he said, uh, this is it. I said, yeah, you know. He said, well, um, I have two, two more interviews. I got uh, uh, two graduates coming from um, American Academy. And American Academy, what they do is it's a two-year school, but they work your butt off. And they were so structured. The graduates come out, as far as the technical, they were in, impeccable. So I was like, oh, there's no way. I mean, these are graduates coming from America. So I said, well, very nice meeting you and so on. Well, that evening, about 7 o'clock, the uh, phone rang, and uh, he said, can you start Monday? <laughs> I said, wow. So I asked him on, when I, after I started, I said, so what happened to the seniors? He said, well, to be honest, uh, I really like what you did with those uh, six drawings. They were so accurate, precise. I see more potentials than these kids and so on, you know. I said, wow, great. It was three bucks an hour, and so I would start working 75 hours mm. while going to school. While going to school, yeah. 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 And so the owner found, he said, well, how can you work 75 hours? He saw the timesheet, you know. So you're here all night. I said, yes, when do you sleep? I said, I take about 10, 20 minute nap on your couch. He said, all right, uh, let me help you. So he gave me a raise to $4 an hour after one month. And uh, then the two months later, uh, I got raised up to six bucks an hour. That was a lot of money back then. Yeah. And uh, nurses and med techs were making $3.50 an hour at the hospital. Yeah. And uh, so then, by year end, I was up to twelve dollars an hour. Wow! Yeah, wow. that was more money than my father was making as a chief engineer. Right. And it was more money than my boss was making. Uh -huh. Well, he found out. So from the secretary, who was very nosy type girl, and and she likes to instigate her problems. So she went and told him. Said that you know, your apprentice is making more money than you. So he went and asked for a raise, and, uh, and uh, Jaster said no. He said, well, Dominic's making more money than I am. He said, well, he's the chief designer. So all of a sudden, I became his boss. Right, so you just got promoted right in the spot, right? Yeah, I didn't yeah. even know about it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, so, so did, immediately did after... Did he stay or did he quit? Uh, he quit. He, yeah. he got another job, but... As my uh, jester said, well, he's never gonna be able to do. You know, it's it's, it's a two. You're a creative mm -hmm. person. Ralph is a great at technical, but mm -hmm. he's just not doesn't have the imagination you have and stuff like that. And uh, so, anyways, uh, um, he left. And in the ad, ad advertising business, um, uh, what normally is in Chicago, summertime, everybody's slow. And they go on vacations and all that stuff, okay? And so we were pretty slow as the summer came. And uh, and uh, I just sat there and I I thought about 
okay, how can I help this company increase business? And uh, I had taken some basic orientation photography. I mean, that's all I had. But there was something about it that I learned very quickly. We were doing a lot of 35 millimeter slides. And the slides were not a business tool. They were mainly just a, more of a hobby. Um, people shot uh, slides for um, vacations. And then they all got Kodak projectors and they put up a little bed sheet on the wall and showed their vacation photos and that kind of thing, you know. Uh, and But I got an idea, like, how to use the slides for um, business meetings. So you would have graphs and charts and, you know, the words instead of just pictures. And so I went to the photo uh, store and, and uh, there was a, uh, a photo store, uh, the general manager there, and I told him what I wanted to do, and he said, oh my God, what a timing. He said, Kodak just dropped off a whole demo on how to convert slides for business meetings. Mm -hmm. And they set up a whole sort of like work center down in the basement. Right. Wow. So he took me down there, he showed me all the things you could do and so I needed a little copy stand and I needed to, and he explained to me how to take a black and white and using a color filter and you could reverse, use a reverse film. And so all of a sudden, um, <clears throat> you have a black type and a white paper and you use a yellow filter and shoot that and all of a sudden the type is white and the background is a midnight blue. So I bought all these filters and how to, and I could mark on that piece of paper, this creates this type of slide and so on. So I knew how to make slides, um, business slides, very quickly, instantly, and how to do it in multiple different ways. I mean, I just like learned all this you know, over one weekend. So then Monday morning came along and and uh, I told my boss, the owner, and I said, Ed, um, things are kind of slow. He said, yeah, that's the way summer is. I said, uh, would you mind if I tried to do some selling? And he said, you think selling's easy? I said, no, no, I, I don't think it, anything's easy. I just don't want to sit here. He said, well, let me give you a little tip about selling, okay? It's gonna take you about 50 phone cars to get a one appointment. It's gonna take 10 appointments before you get a project. So you got a lot of phone calls to make. I said, all right. Then I went and took, took a little sales course, uh, uh, kind of a, more like a seminar uh, on print selling printing, and just for the sales portion of it. And so I went through that, and, and about two weeks later, I was ready to go on the road. I had all my sample slides and and it was a whole new concept. It was basically, uh, best way to describe it was creating a PowerPoint. Yeah, it's like the birth yeah. of PowerPoint. Yeah. Right. And uh, so, and no one was, they, they were, everybody was using these flip charts, mm -hmm. you know, and, right. and the executive has to get up front of, and the flip charts are great for a uh, room with uh, 10 people. Mm -hmm. but. When you got a meeting where you're gonna to present to 20 or 30 or 100 of people, or even a thousand people, you know. 
it's a big step up professional right. wise. Yeah, professionalism. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I put all this together, and and, uh, um, and luckily my odds were far better than what he had told me. It took me about ten phone calls, and I got an appointment, and uh, I took two appointments. I got a project, and uh, I remember the first one was a Continental Bank of Illinois. I got in that lobby and. You know, those bank lobbies are about three stories tall, and you got these, uh, you know, Greek uh, columns, or, you know, and you've, you're literally about uh, two inches. I go in there, and I'm nervous as heck. My first sales call ever, and I'm sweating, and, and I feel so small, and, and I'm conscious of my accent, and I'm just, you know, nervous. And uh, I come in, I tell the secretary, uh, I have an appointment with Mr. So-and-so, and he said, oh, take a seat over there, and, you know, and I sat there for about 20 minutes, and I kept on feeling like I'm sh shrinking, and I feel <laughs> like I'm in peewee in that their giant chair of his, you know, <laughs> and uh, finally the guy shows up, and oh, uh, he couldn't be a short guy. This guy had to be six foot five, right. and I look up, and the first thing comes out of his mouth, he goes, Dominic? I said, yes, sir. Then he looks at me and goes, are you sure? <laughs> and I said to myself, okay, what did you mean by that? And, and I think immediately was that this guy was Italian, and he had assumed he was going to see an Italian kid. And uh, I like okay, this is not going to go, This we're not going to make any sales call out. So he met with me and I uh, goodbye, you know, that kind of thing. And, and the second meeting was a young couple, they had just started their own their advertising agency and they were very intrigued with my concept and everything. And So I said, well, we don't have a whole lot of money. And so it was like a couple of hundred bucks. I said, I'll, I'll do it. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I hit the jackpot and all of a sudden it was like 4.30 in the afternoon and I'm meeting with this guy named uh, Kevin Sullivan for uh, Flying Tigers uh, uh, Portland Railroad Company. Okay. They made all the Portland Rail cars in Chicago and uh, uh, he's just blown by this whole idea and he's got a big meeting next day, tomorrow morning, mm -hmm. 8 o'clock. Wow. You know, and uh, and he wanted he, to have it. He wants to try it. Mm -hmm. So he said, all right. So um, you, you put it together for him? Over yeah. And yeah. I mean, he said, okay, 100 slides. Mm -hmm. You have to be here by 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. I said, how much is it? I said, $10,000. He didn't hesitate a thing. He said, all right, 10000 Okay, But you've got to be here at 8 o'clock. Otherwise, forget it. So I was in heaven. I got jumped in the taxi and got to the studio. Went back to your studio and told your boss you just closed the deal well, for 10000 wish it was that simple. <laughs> I got to the studio at 5 after 5. Lights are out. <laughs> Everybody's it gone. Everybody's gone. You don't have a key. No, no. Key? I, oh, you have a key? All right. Yeah. yeah. But so you're by yourself. I'm by myself. Yep. And I got 100 slides. <laughs> and I'm looking and I was like, okay. All right. I'm looking at all the slides, each one. And all this typesetting, that's got to sure. be done. Yeah. Right. Well, back then, everything was hot type. Yeah. you got to send it out. And the fastest you get back is 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So I can't call, send any of this out. 
we have this typositor. I don't know if you know what that is. No. Typositor was a headline typesetting, and we have a reel, two-inch film reel, with this is whole Helvetica. One reel. Helvetica is a typeface. You're right, yeah. typeface. This would be Helvetica medium. Right. Next one is Helvetica bold. Right. Next reel. These are eight inches uh-huh. round, you know. Yeah. You put it on one side, put it on the other side, and run this through, and there's a two-inch paper film runs underneath it, and this thing goes through over the <coughs> above, below the light, and exposure, and then re- so you have to crank. Yeah. Letter okay. by letter by letter. Right. Yeah. One letter at a time. Yeah. I have to typeset hundred slides. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I, I, I swear I don't know how I managed to do all this, but <clears throat> I typeset, and I mean I've got like hundred feet of these reams <laughs> of type. <laughs> I have to scissor cut all those words <laughs> and put it on the. T- Photostat machine and uh, shoot it down to 30%. You're making me tired just describing yeah. it. And shoot another at 30%, get it down to small enough, then I could, because my art is going to be 6 by 9 inch proportion. And I have to hand glue all those words together to make a sentence and so on and to exact proofreading, make sure there's no mistakes whatsoever. Then the charts. Well, you think I would do a simple bar chart, just draw a little box, and 29%, 30%. No, I gotta get creative. I draw all these little uh, silhouettes of trains and railroad cars and coal cars and all this, little automobile cars, <laughs> and the train goes to 29% and another train goes 40% and so on. And then, of course, got a blue train, you got the red train, you got the yellow train. Oh, so all this colors and everything. And uh, and of course there is no photo labs that you could get this uh, slides to process. Mm-hmm. So luckily, I know kids, same age, who's going to another school and he's working at a photo lab. So I get hold of him at midnight. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, BC, this is Dominic, I need your help. You have a key to your photo lab, right? I said, yeah. I said, I need you to open it up. I said, I can't do that. I said, yes, you can. <laughs> open it up. I'll buy you breakfast in the morning, okay? <laughs> you know? So I said, Danny, it, it takes four hours for the chemical to warm up. I know, so let's get down there. You know. So he got down there about the one o'clock in the morning, turned all the crank all the machines on and everything, and, and by 6.30 or so, I have everything that I need to process. I go over there and uh, I hand him four or five rolls of film and we process it. And then we hand cut, hair dryer to dry the film and hand mount each one and and put it through the whole tray and and do a test runs. And uh, I put together two complete sets and uh, 7.30, clink, jump in a taxi go over there and Kevin hasn't arrived yet the secretary's there I hand it to her and and I said uh, um, I won't be around I'm, I gotta go home take a shower and go to school and uh, so everything is here and best luck and uh, I went to school and didn't sleep at all and I uh, got back to the studio 
12.30 in the afternoon. Uh, I got out of school early and went to the studio and, and uh, as soon as the door closed, the, uh, the owner, Ed, assumed it was me and he screamed, you know, Dominic, is that you? I said, yeah, it's me. What the hell happened last night? I said, what do you mean? There was Kevin on the phone. Kevin Sullivan from Pullman. I said, what happened? He said, it's the most incredible presentation that was ever done and so on. He's got another one. He wants, you, he wants to see you right away. <laughs> Hopefully he gave you a little more time yeah, this yeah. time, right? And he's like, so what did you do last night? I said, well, I did hundreds, made hundred slides. <laughs> By hand. He said, what do you mean hundred slides? So he had no idea because he doesn't know anything about this, oh, what yeah, I'm the doing. Project? He no, you understand the project? Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. And he doesn't know that yeah. what I can do. Yeah. You know? And he basically, I asked him for $1,000 to buy the Nikon camera, copy stand, and mm -hmm. I got this whole package. And that weekend, I taught myself to do this. And uh, so I said, so I said, there's some slides in the, the light table, you know in the dark room. So he went in there and he saw all this and it's like, you did all this last night? Who helped you? I said, what do you mean? Nobody. You typeset all this, put all these things together, everything, all last night, you got it? Yes. I said, yeah. And I had BC, my friend, to open the lab and process and he said, well, how much did you charge him? I said, 10,000. 10,000? How in the world did you do that? Because slides was basically a dollar a slide those days. You know, of course, they were just pictures, you know. Yeah. But it's like $100 a slide? I said, yes, sir. He said, that is unbelievable, you know. <laughs> so he said, well, you better go see Kevin. He's got another one. So all of a sudden, I was producing. So it started out with just that. Then I got a concept of, okay, how about if we use two projectors? So they had the slide projectors, they had dissolved unit. So one slide would fade and another one would come on and yeah. so on. Uh -huh. So then I got the idea, well, there's gotta be ways to sort of have a controller that I could sort of control maybe three projectors and so on. And it turned out there was a company from Germany had just come out with a controller for that. So a little box that you could plug all the, so you could do it up to five projectors. Then they came up, a few months later, they came up with a new model that you could go up to 15 projectors. Wow. So all of a sudden we had these uh, slide trays that <clears throat> basically three rows, five projectors. And it was basically, we started to create animation. Yeah. So you got 15 projectors where slides are going, and you gotta be have it like behind a glass wall, because the sound of these slides carries just yeah yeah. But you, that's like you were cutting edge with that yeah, stuff. Yeah. There's nobody doing that probably right. At the time, and right? so we we would start putting music to it, and right. and uh, it was yeah. it was actually better. Some of these things were so incredible with the sound, it was better than going to see a motion picture. Because motion picture back then was what, 16 millimeter? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, here's a 35 millimeter, it's like, a, it was like 
creating high definition. Yeah, Thank you for listening to Parkwest Gallery's Behind the Artist. To learn more about Parkwest Gallery's family of artists, visit us online at parkwestgallery.com or follow us on social media. You can subscribe to Behind the Artist on your favourite podcast app and be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes.